Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs and your host for this episode. For many years, public discourse and policy debates about disabilities have focused on the rights of individuals with medically recognized impairments. But increasingly, scholarly efforts in the field of disability studies are complicating our conception of disability and reshaping how we think about our bodies, the range of freedoms we enjoy, and the limitations we experience. Today, we're talking to Nancy Hirschman. She's a professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. She's been a leading figure in the field of feminist political theory for many years and has recently turned her considerable scholarly attentions to the arena of disability studies. This fall, she's a fellow at the National Humanities Center and has been working on a project entitled Freedom, Power, and Disability. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. In this book, you help us to reimagine what freedom means or can mean from a disability perspective. It's an incredible project, both in terms of the range of disciplines it engages and intervenes in, and also in terms of the purview that it takes on from the 17th century to the present. Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this project. Well, ironically, I I sort of fell into it. Um, It was the 2000 presidential campaign, and George Bush was saying that if he were elected, he would ban embryonic stem cell research. At the time, my husband was actually working on projects that would have utilized uh, embryonic stem cells, particularly in the uh, creation of uh, beta cells. And I myself had been interested in and following uh, certain sorts of medical therapies that would have benefited from embryonic stem cell research. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to write an op-ed because I think the whole thinking about what's problematic about embryonic stem cell research really misses an important point, um, and it's important that we get from Kant. Now, this was 2000. There weren't all these blogs and websites. So, of course, you know, I sent it to the New York Times, and not surprisingly, it didn't get published. But I thought, well, gee, I'm an academic. I can actually turn this into a real article. And that's what I did. And that's how I got my start. But the book that you're working on now is more than what came out of that moment, right? And I'm thinking here, especially of your 2008 book, Gender, Class, and Freedom in Modern Political Theory. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this work segues or builds on that previous work? Well, at the time that I was uh, working on the embryonic stem cell question, I was also working, uh, finishing up the subject of liberty and working on gender, class, and freedom in modern political theory. And in the process of working on those books, disability imagery started popping out at me in the canonical thinkers. It was really surprising to me how important disability imagery is in these theorists' conception specifically of freedom. Disability is often offered as the limiting condition of freedom. It is seen as a barrier to freedom. It is seen as um, something that's at odds with the body, whether it's Hobbes comparing a a stone that lieth still to a man fastened to his bed by illness, or whether it's Locke talking about the, quote, paralytic who is unable to cross the room. It really uh, struck me how often disability imagery popped up in these conceptions of freedom. And it got me thinking about the role of disability informing these theorists' conception of freedom, just as I had been working on the way in which gender had informed their concepts of freedom. The title of your book is Freedom, Power, and Disability, and I know you've written a lot about freedom. 
Talk to us more about how disability helps us to think about freedom. Certainly in the historical perspective, I believe that certain conceptualizations that arise out of the history of political theory, uh, such as the notion that freedom presupposes ability, that it's nonsensical to talk about things that you're unable to do, such as philosophers use examples like jumping straight up in the air 20 feet. These really echo the thinking of people like Hobbes and Locke and other earlier figures. So that the way we think about freedom today, I think, is very much influenced by that start in the modern era. And of course, arguably going back to the ancient uh, political philosophy as well. But contemporary freedom theory is a lot more oh, I guess we should say sophisticated um, in the ways in which it does the disability dodge, uh, we might call. Um, because some contemporary philosophers, uh, particularly philosophers, really explicitly take up concepts of freedom and justice in terms of disability. And it's often the case that disability is seen as something that does not really inform us about our concepts, but rather is a problem that needs to be overcome or a problem that needs to be solved. And this reflects common thinking about disability. What disability scholars have called the medical model was the dominant model by which people thought of disability for many, many years. Um, and in this model, disability is seen as a disorder in a particular individual body. It's like illness. It has to be cured. It makes the life of the person who has the condition less valuable, less worth living. And disability scholars pushed back on that, probably beginning in the 60s and 70s, with what's called the social model. And in the social model, it's argued that what turns a particular bodily condition, which they would consider an impairment, into a disability is the way in which society is structured, whether it's the built environment, such as a lack of stairs or ramps for wheelchair access, or whether it's social attitudes, such as the assumption that um, a hearing-impaired person cannot perform a particular job that requires uh, the use of a telephone, that those sorts of conditions are what disable these particular bodies. And the social model maintains that the social structure is organized in a way to address the needs of certain kinds of bodies and other kinds of bodies get left out. Um, and it is that notion that disability is created. So if that's the case, then we have a very different view of what constitutes a barrier, what constitutes an obstacle to freedom. And so of those two models, do you endorse the social model? Well, I do and I don't. Um, the social model has certainly contributed a great deal to my ability to think about freedom from the perspective of disability. Things that we take, that non-disabled people have taken for granted, have just assumed are sort of natural, inevitable parts of the landscape, such as stairs, become called into question as things that were constructed within a particular time frame, within a particular social construct, that don't have to be there. I mean, there's no reason why buildings couldn't have built uh, with ramps around their perimeters instead of stairways up the center of them, just as, as one example. And so the social model really helps us cast the notion of barrier and obstacle in a much broader way. It allows us to be a lot more inclusive about what counts and what doesn't count as a barrier to freedom. At the same time, I think that the social model, particularly as it was developed in the United Kingdom, 
may run the risk of overstating. And what it overstates is the experience of embodiment and particularly the notion that in many impaired conditions of impairment, uh, pain and suffering can be a result of those conditions. And to say, well, disability is just a difference, uh, I think negates and denies the fact that, for instance, um, a person with paraplegia takes at least twice, if not three times long, to get dressed in the morning, as I do. That that shapes that person's day and that person's work day in a way that it doesn't for me. You know, if I take a long time to get dressed, it's because I can't decide what to wear. I mean, what a luxury, right? <laughs> yeah. and now, part of that is social in the sense of what we define as acceptable wardrobe for a working woman may not be conducive to certain kinds of bodies. It may presuppose a particular kind of body. So the social model is always there and present. But there is something about the body that I want to bring back in to disability studies. And I'm not alone here. Um, other people have been doing it. But what I'm trying to do is say that it really presents us with a third model, what I want to call an ecological model, where the body is situated within particular contexts and particular times and particular situations. But the body itself is not just a social product. It is also at the same time a material product, a material entity, that it has a certain givenness and viscerality that I don't think we want to lose sight of. And the reason we don't want to lose a sight of it is because of the importance of subjectivity and desire to freedom. And that's a perfect segue. So you've brought us back to the body. Talk to us a little bit more about the role of desire and also about will. I know you care about the will also. Well, freedom, you know, the way I've, I constructed it in my last two books, really does involve the ability to express desires, to pursue desires, to make choices. Those desires are always situated within particular contexts. And they're always going to be influenced by the social context. So think of Mary Wollstonecraft, right? She argues in The Vindication of the Rights of Women, look, if you bring up girls in a world that says you shouldn't be educated, reading is bad for girls, um, you shouldn't learn Latin or mathematics, you should simply make yourself appealing to men so that you can get married and be a wife and mother. She says, well, then don't be surprised if those girls grow up into women who can gossip and sew but can't conduct a rational conversation with their husbands. The society will produce what it wants to produce. But at the same time, subjectivity and desire also come from the body. They're constituted by the body. Uh, there have been people like Mary Wollstonecraft who have borrowed from other social discourses but also have engaged with a sense of self that defies how society defines them. And I think the history of disability has been a history of disabled people saying, no, no, I'm not my limitation. I go beyond that. But where does that sense of self come from? And I think it comes from, in part, a sense of embodiment. So when I say I want to bring the body back into disability, I'm not saying just that disabling conditions produce a negative effect of pain or limitation or desire. But I also want to say that we can't forget that that may be part of a lot of impaired bodies' experience. At the same time, I also want to say, nevertheless, bodies with impairments, like even the ideal non-impaired body, if, if there is such a thing, also brings to the world a sense of possibility, a sense of capacity, and a sense of ability, different kinds of abilities, that seek expression 
And it is the seeking of expression that I think we want to be able to respect and honor in a conception of freedom that we want to develop as political theorists. In your 2003 book, The Subject of Liberty, the lived experiences of women were really critical to your scholarly analysis of freedom. Is there something similar at work in this project where you really look at the practical? And you've started talking about this in your previous answer. Tell us more about that. Personal narrative is a very important part of disability scholarship. Many of the very important works that emerged from the contemporary disability studies movement and the disability studies literature involves first-person accounts. What is it like to be waist-high in the world? What is it like to be told that you should die young, as Harriet McBride, her book, Too Late to Die Young? What is it like to live in a world that is not only built against you, so to speak, but is also hostile to your very existence. And I think that that puts, certainly there's a lot of echoes between that, a lot of parallels between that and the experience of women from various classes and races and uh, sexualities and other social social groups uh, throughout history. But the hostility towards people with disabilities has been a very important part of the story of unfreedom for disabled people. And so getting personal narratives or reading personal narratives and understanding the first person perspective of disability is always gonna be very important to being able to tell an adequate story about disability experience. I very much look forward to reading this work and learning more about how you're thinking about this project and how it develops. I'm wondering for you as a scholar, who do you wish to reach with this book and what do you hope the interventions will be? Well, one of my major goals is to get my colleagues in political theory to recognize disability as an important topic for discussion. We are way behind the historians and the folks in English literature and not to mention philosophy in understanding the importance and the relevance of disability. And I don't understand it because disability is very political. It's a very important issue for politics, for public policy, but also raises many important issues in terms of justice, freedom, rights, obligation, and particularly power. I think political theory as a discipline has things to say about disability experience that no other discipline has to say and no other discipline can say. And I think that's an important contribution. So that's number one. The second thing is I hope to introduce to disability scholars how political scientists and how people who think for a living about politics think differently about politics than your average philosopher or historian. Politics is a very complex and very nuanced endeavor, and it has a a very complicated history um, that I think political theorists are much more in tune to than scholars from other fields. And so I think what having a political theory of disability can do is help enrich and further deepen um, the vast wealth of disability scholarship that has been emerging over the past several decades. Thank you, Nancy, for joining us today. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.